Tonight on The Readout. Then we also found, unbeknownst to us, uh, a, uh, a subpoena that was sent to my cell phone carrier uh, that was so broad in scope uh, that it, it uh, defies logic on how it could have any legislative intent. One year after Mark Meadows made those remarks, we're learning exactly what was in thousands of text messages he sent and received regarding Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election. The reporter who reviewed those text messages joins me tonight with new reporting. Also tonight, it's not the end of the fight, but it is an historic step forward. President Biden signs the Respect for Marriage Act protecting the rights of same-sex and interracial couples. Plus, after 10 months in Russian detention, what's next for WNBA star Brittany Griner? Griner's agent joins me tonight. We begin tonight with news from the January 6th committee. We now know the final public meeting will be held next Monday, December 19th. The committee will hold a vote to approve its report summarizing their findings about Trump and his allies' attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election and announce any criminal referrals to the, to the Department of Justice. The final report will be released publicly two days later on Wednesday, December 21st. Which brings me to a Republican House member from Georgia. And no, I'm not talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene, who in the fall of 2020 was still a QAnon Facebook troll who had been elected in rural Georgia but hadn't been sworn into Congress yet. Instead, I am talking about this guy, Congressman Rick Allen. And I know many of you may not know who he is. He's represented Georgia's 12th congressional district since 2015. And according to Talking Point's memo, he's one of the members of Congress who worked most aggressively behind the scenes to overturn Donald Trump's election defeat. According to more than two dozen text messages TPM obtained between the congressman and former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, his efforts included passing unproven YouTube conspiracy videos from Romania to the White House and pressuring Georgia's Secretary of State. It's all part of more than 2,000 text messages TPM obtained that Meadows turned over to the January 6th committee at the end of last year. And while some of those text messages have already been revealed by various media outlets, the new reporting describes the scope of the more than two, the more than 450 messages shared between Meadows and at least 34 members of Congress as they plotted to overturn the election starting on election night and going through President Joe Biden's inauguration. It's the latest evidence showing how broad the effort was within the elected membership of the Republican Party to find some pretext, just anything at all to change the 2020 election results. Talking Point's memo describes the text as rife with links to far-right websites, questionable legal theories, violent rhetoric, and advocacy for authoritarian power grabs. In one text sent a week after the 2020 election by Arizona Republican Andy Biggs, who is running for House Speaker in the next Congress, Biggs raised debunked claims that a substantial number of illegal immigrants cast ballots. In another text on December 26, 2020, Pennsylvania Republican Scott Perry, who later sought a pardon, texted, we got to get going, saying election denier Jeffrey Clark should be installed as attorney general, since any position below that will, quote, not have the authority to enforce what needs to be done. In one text from the day before the attack on the Capitol, Ohio Republican Jim Jordan, a leading member of the House Republican Caucus, pushed the plan to have Vice President Mike Pence 
refused to certify Biden's victory. And in another text, just three days before Biden's inauguration, South Carolina Republican Ralph Norman writes in part, our last hope is invoking martial law. Please urge the president to do so. Now, we should point out that NBC News has not independently confirmed the text published by TPM and the full context of the replies from Meadows aren't always clear. What does appear clear, however, is that while the text showed varying degrees of involvement by those members of Congress, the communications provide an explanation of how Republican members participated in undermining people's faith in democracy and how many of them bought into the fantasy that Trump had actually won ultimately riling up a crowd that became violent and attacked the Capitol, where they were also forced to run and hide. Perhaps more concerning is that a number of these same insurrectionist members of Congress will find themselves elevated to positions of power when Republicans retake control of the chamber in January. And joining me now is Hunter Walker, one of the investigative reporters for Talking Points Memo, who reviewed those texts to Mark Meadows. Hunter, it is good to see you. Let's go into this, because um, let me just read you one text. This is a text to Mark Meadows on January 5th. This is right before the insurrection. And this is from Representative Rick Allen of Georgia. Mark, thought the president might want to tweet this. I will send you the text chain between me and Raffensperger. Bottom line, Dominion machines down in multiple polling precincts in Columbia County, my Republican stronghold. This should give the president the ammo he needs to go after Raffensperger. Now, you know, long lines of machines being down. Been there, done that if you voted in a black precinct. That's not like an uncommon thing. But it feels like Rick Allen's text, I have a bunch of them here, they speak to a kind of like conspiracy theory that it seems like he and others believed that God was involved, that there was some sort of religious war going on and that it involved everything from satellites out of Italy to Dominion, all conspiring to keep Donald Trump from being president again. Did you get the sense from reviewing these text messages that these Congress members believed it or that they were just saying it to keep Trump in? So you're getting at the million dollar question there. Uh, were these people just power hungry or were they true believers? And, you know, I can't get in anyone else's head, but I'll tell you, the texts bring you pretty darn close. And what we saw with Rick Allen is someone who was just, you know, buying into absolutely the wildest stuff online. I mean, in one case, he was talking to someone who he repeatedly claimed to Meadows was a quote unquote source, a high level official, someone in intelligence. Um, and when he finally seemed to be presenting the information that he was gleaning from this, you know, allegedly high level contact, it was basically a YouTube video posted by a Romanian anti-vaccine activist that was completely evidence-free. Um, and then an article from 2005 about a data breach of driver's licenses. So, you know, if he wasn't in on the joke, he was, you know, displaying comprehension issues and a basic lack of information literacy that's, that's frankly alarming. What's also alarming is the ease with which, you know, foreign materials and questionable stuff online. We saw members of Congress sharing stuff from Infowars, uh, from websites with white supremacist ties, profane names, how easily this stuff made it to the highest levels of the Trump administration. Uh, that one from Allen that you brought up where he was talking about, you know, 
the debunked Dominion conspiracy, uh, actually made it to Trump's Twitter page on January 5th, the day of the Georgia runoff and the day before um, the attack on the Capitol. Uh, we saw other instances where, you know, Brian Babin, a Texas congressman, was another one of these, you know, marginal figures in the MAGA extended universe, who nevertheless was, you know, extremely um you know, uh, extremely aggressive in their correspondence with Meadows, uh, both in terms of the volume and the content. Uh, Meadows was referring wild stuff Babin sent him to the DOJ. So, you know, this was utterly deranged logic um, and conspiratorial stuff that, whether they believed it or not, was resulting in real official action by the former president and those closest to him. I mean, there were, you know, conspiracy theories about 100,000 Ukrainians being shipped into the United States to vote illegally. I mean, it, it really got really detailed. Um, in, in the case of your new reporting, I want to let you talk about your new reporting, because Dick Morris is invoked here. And the focus seemed to be on trying to get either Arizona or Georgia to be the lead state in causing the election to be overturned. But they also seem to believe in the legal theory that we've heard about and the January 6th committee has put forward, that the states could simply send their own electors. Talk about the newest reporting. Yeah. So, you know, the first person in the Meadows text log, and this was first reported in The Breach, uh, a book I co-wrote on the January 6th investigation with um, one of the former staffers on the committee. Uh, the first person to bring up Dan January 6th was Don Jr., uh, and he sent a message to Mark Meadows with some variation of that alternate elector strategy. And Meadows said, you know, we're already working on that in several swing states. Uh, one thing you see when you look at the full text log, and again, a lot of that's being revealed for the first time on Talking Points Memo, you know, there was a house team as Meadows described it. Uh, Jim Jordan seemed to be a clear leader on that front. Uh, Ted Cruz was identified as leading the Senate objection. Then they had contacts in multiple local states, including Pennsylvania, Georgia. Um, in, in some cases, local legislators, one state senator in Georgia was texting Meadows directly. Um, but all of this did seem to be focused on that idea that they could kind of just wipe out the will of the people and send in their own electors. Um, they were, you know, coming up with various pretexts for that. They were lobbying for that. Um, they were also directly pressuring the governors, um, namely Doug Ducey in Arizona, who Andy Biggs said he pressed at the request of Trump and Brian Kemp in Georgia to, you know, certify the alternate slates. And I think, you know, for me, one of the things that really sticks in my head after weeks and weeks of reviewing these messages is that in a couple key instances, including with Vice President Mike Pence and those governors, if just a few more people had been willing to go along with these strategies, yeah. we don't know what could could have happened. Let me bring in—stay with me just for a moment, Hunter. I want to bring in Congresswoman Madeleine Dean of Pennsylvania. She was a 2021 impeachment manager. And when you go back and think about the fact that all of you were terrorized and terrified on January 6th, based in part on conspiracies from YouTube videos and other sources, that other—your your fellow members— believed and were pushing and that Mark Meadows was entertaining. I just wonder what your reaction to that is as a member of Congress and as a former impeachment manager. Well, here we are coming up on a second anniversary of January the 6th. So I'm very pleased to be with you tonight. And thank you, Hunter, for your continuing reporting. Uh, two things that strike me uh, is, number one, I have the ability to speak with the current presidential administration. I have to admit to you, I can speak to the current administration at top levels. It would not be hundreds of emails about political things. 
It would be about policy. I hope that mostly people understand that legislators should be talking to the chief of staff about policy initiatives we're trying to move forward. The other frightening thing to me in reading this reporting, Hunter, is how many of these folks, of course, are still serving in Congress. Uh, and uh, as we, the Democrats, slip into the narrowest of uh, minorities and the Republicans slip into the majority, imagine that these folks, 34 of whom were rabidly texting the chief of staff, hundreds of emails going back and forth, uh, that these folks are now slipping into the majority. I hope the American people realize the, the line that should have been drawn many, many years ago between the politics and the policy. And of course, these insane theories that were for one thing only. They were not to try to write an election that was wronged. They are to try to hold power for one person. And of course, they are clinging to the power of that one person for their own power. That's and, it. And Congresswoman, I mean, several of these people sought pardons. You had a number of these lawmakers that you're then going to be serving with. They, whether they said they believed these conspiracy theories or not, some of them knew they were doing something wrong because they tried to get a pardon as a result of what they had done. And as you mentioned, several of them are now going to be in real positions of power. And by the way, this is before Marjorie Greene was even a congressman. She hadn't even been sworn in yet But when a lot of this stuff was happening. Do, I mean, there won't be the opportunity for oversight, I'm assuming, once you all are in the minority. And so I, I wonder what you make of the fact that you're going to be serving with people who, in theory, knew that they committed potential crimes. Well, I do hope that the Department of Justice continues to do its work. Uh, and I, I'm actually optimistic, believe it or not, uh, because of the extraordinary work of the 1-6 Committee, because of what will go forward as a result of that work and what DOJ and now the special counsel will be doing. Uh, and the fact that, uh, let's face it, folks, the Republicans thought there was going to be this red wave. There wasn't. And I'll take a look at Pennsylvania and take pride in what we did there in making sure that that did not happen. Uh, and so uh, I know that, that this is going to be their, their modus operandi to just go after conspiracy theories and impeachments and, and Biden family members. They're not going to be successful. Uh, I was walking home tonight, Joy, uh, and I thought about what was going on here. And I thought about what was going on in terms of this set of communications, this desperate set of communications that are shocking but not surprising. But notice what is evident, that the Constitution of the United States, that their oath of office in every single one of these cases was tossed to the gutter. I kept looking as I walked down the pavement at the gutter and thought they think nothing of this Constitution when they endeavored to seek power for a person who had simply lost an election. But very quickly, uh, before we go, Hunter, some of the replies don't seem to be there. Do you have any reporting that perhaps at some point they went to Signal or to WhatsApp or somewhere else, and that that's where some of the replies from Mark Meadows might be found? Well, our series is ongoing, but yes, we know this is the tip of the iceberg. There were encrypted apps. There were missing communications. More reporting is coming, including on the pardon front. Very interesting. Uh, please come back, uh, Hunter Walker. The more stuff that you get, please bring it back here, because we definitely want to hear more of your reporting. Congresswoman Madeline Dean, we always appreciate you. Thank you both. And up next on The Readout, it is the culmination of a decades-long fight. President Biden signs historic legislation codifying same-sex and interracial marriage. The Readout continues after this.
road to this moment has been long. But those who believe in equality and justice, you never gave up. Many of you standing on the South Lawn here. So many of you put your relationships on the line, your jobs on the line, your lives on the line to fight for the law I'm about to sign. For me and the entire nation, thank you, thank you, thank you. President Biden today signed the Respect for Marriage Act into law, an historic measure that will codify federal protections for same-sex and interracial marriages, while also repealing the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act that defines marriage as a union between a man and a woman. The bill received support from every Democrat in both chambers of Congress, but only 12 out of the 50 Republican senators and 39 out of 208 Republican House members voted in favor of the bill. It's also important to note that the only reason this legislation came about is because after the Supreme Court overturned Roe this summer, Justice Clarence Thomas blatantly threatened to axe other precedents, including Obergefell, the case that legalized gay marriage nationally. And while this is a big win for equality, there are many who argue it doesn't go far enough. The bill does not guarantee the right to marry. It only requires states to recognize a same-sex marriage license. So if Obergefell is overturned, the law does nothing to prevent individual states from making gay marriages illegal again. And joining me now is State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta of Pennsylvania and Andrew Hartzler, LGBTQ advocate and nephew of Republican Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler of Missouri. Both we're at the White House today for that historic signing. Thank you both for being here. Excited Thank to do so. I, I'm going to start with you, uh, uh, Malcolm. I got to tell you, we have a great picture of you being there because your husband didn't make it, he but he made it. it. He didn't make it, but he made it. Let, let me show this picture. There he is, uh, uh, basically in the photo. Did you have with you? I, I Don't brought, blame I, I know you have it with you. I brought, it <laughs> so, so, so I brought this. I brought this photo, and initially it was a, it was it was a joke because I said, you know, babe, I really wish you could make it, but you know, as a, as a professor, he's writing and yeah. editing, and he said, I need to write, but yeah. you but you bring me you bring me in that way. But I can tell you, it was. Um, I've been at the White House for every major signing the president has done. This one felt so special to have that front row seat of of history and to see this president who has been on the right side of this issue for a long time and speaker pelosi um who's you know about to end her speakership really continuing what has been you know her life's mission as well of getting this codified into law but you yeah. you say it right we still have work to do at the state level we just and i believe you talked about it, in pennsylvania we just took off of the books homosexuality being a crime in Pennsylvania in this yeah. last um, year, we're going to need to do the same thing, getting rid of that language that's still right now in Pennsylvania says marriage between a man and a woman. For my family and all LGBTQ families, yeah. today was a really special day. Well, your husband is super handsome. You just, he, he just didn't come to hang out. I needed to come and hang out. We've got to bring it back. you got to bring it back. Andrew, I don't even know if you were born when the Defense of Marriage Act was signed. I don't think you were. Uh, what? You did it. 96. No, I was not you, born. You didn't exist yet. I was born in 98. You were born in 98. And so, I mean, the reality is for your whole life, the reality has been the Defense of Marriage Act has been on the books. I, I read your story today. Uh, your aunt, let's play a little bit of your aunt. This is how the world got to know you. Yeah. Your aunt uh, said this on the House floor regarding marriage equality in this bill. I hope and pray that my colleagues will find the courage to join me in opposing this misguided and this dangerous bill. And I yield back. 
And I can't imagine how that felt for you uh, as a young gay man to hear your aunt do that. But you told us how you felt about it. You did a TikTok video that went very, very viral. Yeah. Um, uh, so talk about how it felt to hear what she said and versus how it felt today to be at that ceremony. Yeah. Um, when I first saw that, I was devastated. Um, a part of me had thought that after I came out to my aunt, she had had a minor change of heart um, just because I noticed that she didn't vote on the initial um, uh, whenever the Respect for Marriage Act first came to Congress in July. She abstained from voting, so I thought that it was related. Um, and then I wake up and I see this display on the House floor. Um, and it was hurtful, but I wasn't surprised by it because she has a history of this negative rhetoric. And really, these, like this type of rhetoric towards LGBTQ people is harmful. And it has like real life effects. Like we saw it, Colorado and, and Pulse, that when people hear this, they take it to heart. And some people are extremists in this world and yeah. they'll enact on that violence. Um, but today, today was a really great day. Um, it was emotional, to say the least. It, in front of where I was standing in the crowd, there was um, a married couple who had been married for 20 plus years, and with them was their mother. And that was really um, cool to see. And looking around, seeing all the families there, it's amazing that that was there. And also, I was thinking about how so many people in the United States who are LGBTQ youth, and they don't, they don't have their families. Yeah. They don't have people that would ever support them in that capacity. And what the Biden administration passed today with the Respect for Marriage Act is great, and it's a step forward in the right direction. But ultimately, for red states like where I live in Oklahoma, there's no state-level protections. We solely rely on these federal protections. And what was done today was minimal in terms of that there's still people being harmed and um, like harmful policies that are causing pain and like negative mental health outcomes and depression. And when you don't have your family to rely on, you rely on the federal government yeah. or the state government because that's who's there to take care of you. But yeah. when they also don't have your back, it's who do you turn to? Yeah, and I know that you went through a lot in terms of even dealing with conversion therapy and being at a religious university. I mean, it's it's difficult. And depending on the support that you get from, as you said, your family and your state, um, does what does this materially change? Uh, because the thing is, is that there, there still isn't a right to marry in the United States. It depends on what state you live in. In your state, those rights aren't there. In your state, they're there, but there's always sort of tenuous. What does this change? I think, I hope a part of what it changes, Joy, is that people recognize the real power of activism and advocacy, the power of staying involved, and as the speaker said today, of being a little bit impatient about making sure we codify a series of other um, rights and protections that people need. You know, still in Pennsylvania, we don't have non-discrimination um, protections. We have people today in Pennsylvania who can lose their, their, their housing or be kicked out of 
of public accommodations because of simply because of who they are. Yeah. I think what changes today is not only um, getting rid of the Defense of Marriage Act at the federal level, which is a huge victory. And I think Senator Baldwin deserves just so much credit um, for helping to make this happen. But a part of what it also does is set a real precedent that states can follow. I think it makes it easier for state legislators like myself to go back and say, hey, we have this thing kind of on the books that yeah. the courts and the federal government says doesn't yeah. work. So maybe we should take it off. Yeah. We did the same thing, as I said before, when we heard uh, Justice Thomas talking about Lawrence v. Texas. Yeah. We went and said, hey, in Pennsylvania, we don't want to be a, a, you know, a trigger law state, just like we saw with Dobbs, where states had these really egregious um, laws around abortion access on the books. As yeah. soon as the court decided, um, those things were enacted like that. And so this should be a real clarion call for state legislators to go through their state laws with a comb and try to get out every um, you know negative statute that you can get out. But it is going to take that activism and the movement to deliver these type of historic Absolutely. victories. It was, a, it was a great day. I mean, Sam Smith performed. I mean, that I was know. pretty cool. Cindy Lauper was there for my generation. You probably weren't alive we know either. Cindy Lauper. Okay, I was going to say you probably weren't alive either when the thing passed. Well, I'm very happy for both of you guys. I mean, I'm excited for me. For my, my daughter can get married one day, you know, because of this law uh, as well. So I'm excited for both Thank of you. Thank you. Love y'all. Love it. It's exciting. Pennsylvania State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta and the great Andrew Hartzler. You were a veteran. You did good. He's not. He doesn't Thank hasn't you. done a lot of He's TV. He's a pro. Yeah. He's a pro. He's a pro now. So come back anytime. Still ahead. How do you reacclimate to life in the state after ten months? In Russian detention, Texas barbecue, Dr. Pepper, and a Christmas tree? Of course. Brittany Griner's agent, Lindsay Kagawa Kolos, joins me next. We literally cannot say it enough. WNBA star Brittany Griner is home. Her release from a Russian prison is one of those stories we just can't stop smiling about, even as questions remain over her future now that she's known for a lot more than dunks on the court. So one thing is for sure, no matter how things pan out and no matter where her story takes us, she's got a mountain of support behind her. She's on the ground. Stop it. Yep, she's on the ground. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. Today's just a happy day for me and my family, so um, I'm going to smile right now. <laughs> um, thank you. Brittany Griner was finally on her way home. I got to know her incredible wife. We were together in the Oval Office, her wife and I. We heard Brittany's voice on the phone when she was freed. And we addressed the nation together. When we did that, Brittany's wife said, quote, today, my family is whole. Biden with those Ray-Bans. Joining me now is the person instrumental in Griner's transition home, Brittany Griner's agent, Lindsay Kagawa-Colas. Uh, thank you for being here, Ms. Kagawa-Colas. Uh, let's talk about it. So we know a little bit about uh, Brittany's first couple days home. She got a haircut. Um, she had cut her locks due to the low temperatures in the prison she stayed in, so she shaped that up. She had a Dr. Pepper and some San Antonio barbecue. What else can you tell us about her first day's home? Hey, Joy, thanks for having me. Um, I mean, I guess a lot. I want to leave a lot for also for Brittany to tell everybody about. Um, look, when we when we saw her take those first steps onto American soil, it's it's actually hard to describe the feeling. Um, you know, it was joyous. 
and it, it was rewarding. And that sparkle was still there, right? The first hug, it's like it's, you're waiting 10 months for that hug and seeing her and Sherelle embrace. Um, it was the fulfillment of a promise that we made where, we, you know, we told Sherelle, we are going to get her home. And we made that promise and we did it, Joe. And we're so excited. So her day's been filled um, with what she wants to do, which is really important. And she's very, very appreciative of all the resources that the U.S. government has been able to provide. Um, you know, their reemergent uh, reintegration program is really, really robust. And she's taking her time to take advantage of those resources, you know, have some barbecue, play a little basketball um, and see her family. And catch up on a lot of lost time. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, what Brittany Griner was known for before was, you know, being the first woman in the WNBA to do two dunks in a game, you know, for obviously her incredible skills on the court. Um, but now her name is synonymous with her trauma in a lot of ways. So I think, you know, a lot of people are not, you know, expecting her to push herself to get back on the court. Um, but those questions still are out there. There are a lot of her fans that are wondering when they'll see her back on the court. Is that something that she's even thinking about? right now. She's got so many options, um, but one of them is to actually get sleep and rest <laughs> and just, as you said, hang out with her family and drink Dr. Pepper. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and have barbecue and, and sample all the, the fare that San Antonio has to offer. And also last night when we FaceTimed, she was telling me about how she was walking around base and taking pictures with people. You know, Brittany is the daughter of a veteran. She's the daughter of a former law enforcement agent. And you know, she loves America. And so I think that, you know, for everybody who's just gotten to know her, maybe through this trauma or through, you know, all the divisive rhetoric, now they're paying attention and they're going to get to know the woman that we know. And Brittany Griner is a really special person who has been a pioneer almost by accident. You know, Brittany Griner has never asked to be famous. All she's ever done is be herself. And in doing that, she gives other people permission to be themselves too. And that is incredibly powerful. You could not find a better person to give a platform like this to. And the other thing that she talked to me about last night and the night before that and the night before that was her commitment to getting other Americans home. She is really yeah. passionate about making sure that the invisible become visible. And she's always been that way, always been that way. And here she is again through this process. And this is now her community. And she is committed to getting Paul Whelan home. She's committed to getting the other Americans home. And I think she's got a pretty good partner in an administration that has shown they're willing to do really hard things. And she's yeah. there to be a partner in doing that. Oh, and, and a great partner in Sherelle. I mean, I don't think there could have been a, a fiercer advocate um, right. and a fiercer spouse uh, that was out there fighting, constantly making sure no one forgot uh, that Brittany um, was in captivity and uh, and fighting for her liberation. So uh, they can enjoy themselves. Hopefully they can make a second honeymoon of it. And just listen, we right. all would love to be we having some barbecue. We talked about vacation, too. Yeah, exactly. great timing, right? What great Perfect timing to celebrate love. Right. And, and the example to everyone and the power in that. So we're so proud of Sherelle. We're so thankful for her trust and we're thankful to the whole team. It really took a huge, huge coalition of people. And thank you, Joy, for keeping this visible 
and top of the news for us. Thank you it very was, much. It was an absolute honor. And it, listen, if y'all have not checked out the WNBA, if this doesn't make you a fan, I don't even know what to tell you, because it is also a fantastic league. Lindsay Kagawa-Kolas, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, meanwhile, the legendary Gloria Steinem is here. We're just going to keep it rolling to mark the passing. Uh, and this is some sad news, but important news of one of the architects of the modern feminist movement, Dorothy Pittman Hughes. We're back after this. My function is to be a woman and to talk about it and not allow the media to insult me or anybody else in doing what I feel I need to do. I'm, I'm speaking about sexism and racism and I think that it's needed. And especially where women are, are talking about being sisters and we really are getting it together, I think we can't allow women to forget it. And I think that I have, as a black woman, a real function in coming out with a white woman and saying these things. That was Dorothy Pittman Hughes, one of the architects of the modern feminist movement, speaking about the power of having a black woman and a white woman, Gloria Steinem, traveling the country together, advocating for women's rights at a time when feminism was extremely white. Hughes's family announced this weekend that she had passed away at the age of 84. Hughes, already a well-established activist in the civil rights movement, met Steinem when she wrote an article on Hughes's childcare center. They hit the road together, with Steinem crediting Hughes for making her comfortable with public speaking. Hughes biographer Laura Lovett notes that Dorothy's style was to call out the racism she saw in the, women, in the white women's movement. She frequently took to the stage to articulate the way in which white women's privilege oppressed black women, but also offered her friendship with Gloria as proof that this obstacle could be overcome. In 1971, Steinem and Hughes posed for this iconic photo for Esquire magazine, raising their arms in the Black Power salute, which Lovett claim, uh, credits for making Gloria Steinem mainstream. And joining me now is social justice activist Gloria Steinem. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, um, Gloria. And I just want to let you talk and, and talk about um, this Hughes and what she meant to you and what she meant to the movement. I don't, it's really hard to know where to begin. Okay. I mean, I think personally, I never would have become a public speaker without her. Uh, I became a writer, so I didn't have to talk. Only Dorothy gave me the courage to get out there and speak together. Also, if I had gone by myself, I would not have had a group of folks in the audience who looked like the country, and neither would Dorothy. So together, uh, we were much more likely to have representative audiences. It's way more fun to do together anyway. <laughs> um, and altogether, she changed my life. She changed the lives of everybody who listened to her. Um, I'm, uh, it's, it's hard for me to realize she's not here, but the only comfort is that I know she will always be here. You know, there's a there's an, uh, a publication called the 19th, you know, and it has this little asterisk uh, on it because, you know, the suffrage movement was it was white women who didn't want black women to march with them. And unfortunately, that movement was not multiracial. Um, what in your mind was the importance of making the feminist movement, the feminist movement that you were a key leader of, um, multiracial? Because it was possible for it to, you know, have been 
like it was in the early 20th century. Well, and there were a lot of failures because of that. I mean, if we're talking about equal rights for the female half of the country, then we have to represent the female half of the country. I mean, it's just, it's nonsensical otherwise. And uh, because of Dorothy and because she inspired me to get out there in public, which I never otherwise would have done, we together, I guess, symbolized that. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk to you just a little bit since we do have you. And this is another multiracial woman's mm -hmm. movement that is now unfortunately thrust upon us. You know, the end of Roe versus Wade. Um, it, it is something that is is going to hurt all women. Um, but disproportionately, the woman who actually ran Jackson Women's Health, which was at the center of this case. I just want to play a clip from Yamish Alcindor's interview with her and what she said the impact would be. Take a look. I think it's going to be detrimental to the women of Mississippi. I think it's a shot in the face. It's just like, bam, to women of color, especially that, which is the majority of what we're seeing here. I think it affects them more than any other race. What do you make of where we find ourselves as multiracial women facing the end of our liberty over our own bodies? Mm -hmm. You know, it's unspeakable, really. I mean, we're a unique democracy in the world in failing to understand that women have a right to control our own bodies. Otherwise, we're not living in a democracy. Hello. <laughs> and uh, it, it is clear that the big states like California and New York, women maintain this right, but it's outrageous and sometimes dangerous for women in other states that don't have this right it, to have to travel in order to get it. I mean, it, we should be ashamed in the world. Yeah. And, and, and just to go back to it, I mean, this is this is a, a fight that is going to wind up being a multiracial fight. This is what um, Miss Hughes' biography, Laura Lovett, said about the way that black women were treated just in that feminist movement before the two of you came together. Lovett argues that needed representation of the movement, especially Gloria's place in the movement, contributed to the elision of race as a foundational experience in forming feminism. This sequentialist historical treatment elides the contributions of foundational black feminists, such as Dorothy Flo Kennedy. Shirley Chisholm, Dorothy Height, Angela Davis, and others. For you, um, what did making that change, did, well, was it enough of a change? Did, did we do it enough? Like, are we talking about feminism in a way that is, you know, multiracial enough in, in this stage? No, it's not enough, but it's so much more than it was then that it at least allows me to see the progress. Uh, we were in a period then in which the women's movement was regarded as white women and the civil rights movement was regarded as black men and black women were not emphasized in either case, even though they were equally present, more than equally present and in the leadership. I mean, think yeah. about Rosa Parks. Right. Well, I, exactly. Think about Mrs. King. Think about, you know, uh, you know, Mrs. Evers. You can just go through all, you know, all of the women who were so important in trying to move our country yeah. forward. You're absolutely I right. Mean, we well, are. We're living in a patriarchy as well as a racist society <laughs> and patriarchy. That's what it means. You know, yeah. that you focus on men, that only that men count more, that families are viewed as broken if they're not patriarchal, if they're female headed. All of it. 
Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for coming out here or coming here on the show so that we can uh, give Dorothy Pittman Hughes uh, her flowers. And thank you so much. We always appreciate you, Gloria Steinem. Oh, thank, thank, you. You. thank you so much. Thank you for honoring Dorothy. It means so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We will be uh, right back after this. Millions of Americans use Twitter. Nearly a quarter of Americans use the website to break news, see news, make people laugh, organize campaigns and protests, or just let their friends know what's on their minds. But here's the catch. How Americans view Twitter differs based on their political affiliation. 60% of Twitter users who are Republican say that the website is bad for American democracy. Why? Because Twitter has put in place safeguards to make sure that the conversations happening on the website are healthy. If you glance over at Getter, which is a funny name, Parler or Truth Social, you get just a smattering of what they think is acceptable content, which includes rampant racism and anti-Semitism, vicious attacks and mockery of gay and trans people, and lots and lots of images of the human phallus. Key to keeping that kind of bile off of Twitter as much as possible was the company's Trust and Safety Council, which consisted of 100 independent civil human rights and other organizations created back in 2016 to combat hate speech, child exploitation, suicide, and other virulent problems related to the platform. Well, that was the case until last night, when Elon Musk disbanded the group shortly before they were set to meet. When Musk bought Twitter, he promised advertisers that it would not turn into a free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences. Yeah, well, since he took over, that's exactly what it has turned into. Which, while he claims to have cut the number of times that users view hate-filled tweets, the Center for Countering Digital Hate has found a notable boost in the number of tweets that use slurs. Now, as you can see on the screen, there are four words, none of which I can say on TV, even on cable, that have jumped in usage, one, as much as 200%. Musk promised that hate speech would be max deboosted, except, according to the Center for Countering Digital Hate, that has not happened. High-profile, high-reach tweeters who just so happen to share conservative political perspectives have had wide leeway to promote hatred toward LGBTQ plus people. In fact, some of their tweets were viewed millions of times. This is the new old normal for Twitter, because the goal apparently is to get back to the days when Twitter was the Wild West of anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia, racism, and disinformation. This free flow of unbridled hate speech is now the premier location for radicalizing millions of people across the globe and either ritually abusing or chasing away those they disagree with, including the former head of Twitter's trust and safety, you know, the moderation guy, who's now in hiding because apartheid Clyde keeps attacking him on Twitter. And while Trump isn't back, he's still pretending truth social is a thing, you know. It doesn't even matter anymore. Tr social media hate, social media hate swarming is now bigger than him. It's just bigger than him now. And that is tonight's readout. Stay safe out there.